the more we practice, the more we, I think, come into a place where we realize a very deep level that we have no idea what is going to happen next. There are the kind of gross ways, obvious ways that this comes up for us. There's a bike rider who goes out for a ride on a sunny Sunday and never goes home. Every day there are people who confront situations, wars, bombs dropping, births, deaths, things that we have no idea really how they will unfold. And as we practice meeting our experience moment by moment, we also start to see that at a very deep level We have no idea what the next moment will bring. So entering into the present moment fully can be an exploration of this not knowing. Our habits of mind get in the way of not knowing, our habits of mind. Create the illusion that we know in this moment Are you bringing anything from your past into this moment? Thoughts, views, habits, habits of belief that whatever's happening now will continue to happen. and beliefs of who we are, what we can do, what we're capable of, based on our conditioning, our habits, our past. At the more obvious levels, again, we think we'll know day to day, 
what's going to happen. We get up and sit and have breakfast and do some chores. At any moment, things could be utterly different. In your experience right now, Is there a way in which there's a projection into the future? Creation of thoughts, ideas, projected worlds that we believe in. We think we know who we are and who we will be. Even our beliefs and ideas about the present moment can obscure this mystery of meeting experience fresh, meeting experience that we recognize we don't know what's going to happen. We live kind of in a constructed present, constructed reality. We construct the reality of sitting here in a room listening to a Dharma talk. Rather than actually being in that experience, meeting that experience, we actually often live through the idea of the experience. We assign meaning to experience. What does it mean about me in particular? This experience I'm having now is just an experience. And we create whole worlds of meaning, what this experience means. I'm a good meditator. I don't understand meditation. I understood it yesterday. I don't understand it now. There's a 
saying that the Buddha offered, one of my favorite quotes. In whatever way they conceive, that is, in whatever way we conceive or construe our experience, whatever way they conceive, the fact is ever other than that. (laughs) Can we open to this? Concepts also have a particularly diluting nature at times. We talked about this a couple of days ago. That the process of creating concepts, the process of recognizing the perceptual process, that just happens. But there's a way that we believe those concepts. We believe them to be the truth, the reality of experience. It it happens at such a subtle level that we don't know that we're living life through concept. Concepts are extremely useful. I was walking down the path to the pond, past the pond actually, I was pretty far down near the mossy rocks. And walking through the forest there, the mind moved into a, instead of feeling like I was moving through the forest, it felt like the forest was moving, kind of that kind of experience. And it was so clear, the changing, shifting nature of the visual field. The, the seeing that, you know, the tree looked at from this angle is very different from the tree looked at from that angle. It's, it's like not the same beast, <laughs> different thing. And in order to navigate our lives in the usual way, it's really helpful to have the concept of tree being something that we can navigate around. There's a story by John Louis Borgia. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. I believe he's an Argentinian writer, writes short stories. And he wrote this one short story about, and I believe it was based on somebody he'd met as a boy. So it's based in his experience. And this is a story about a boy who'd had some kind of an accident. And um, after that point, while he had this amazing memory, he had this obsession with coming up with um, new words 
for every single experience. Because in his experience, the experience of seeing a dog from the front was completely different than seeing a dog from the side. And they could not have the same name. Mm-hmm. And uh, the story was basically this poor boy became bedridden because he could basically couldn't really navigate the world. So concepts are really useful and we need to understand that they are just concepts. And if we're relating to the world through concept, there's a layer obscuring the actuality of things as they are. So we can explore, open to this possibility of the mystery of this moment, of just meeting the unfolding now, ever-changing, always fresh, unknown, moment to moment, unknown what the next moment will bring. Open, open to possibilities of something completely different than we usually expect or project. And at a kind of a more ordinary level, we're all familiar with the the phenomenon of somebody, a friend, somebody who knows who we are, kind of projecting their idea of who we are onto us. And then we feel kind of boxed in by that. And it's like, you don't know who I am. And we do that same thing to other people, too. We project our ideas. It's very normal, you know. We know how somebody is with us, usually, and so and that's what we expect. I think this is one of the phenomenon around families, how uh, there's such a dynamic in families that if any one person starts to shift in that dynamic, all the other people in the family kind of, not in, not necessarily, you know, consciously, but everybody else in the family kind of comes in and makes it very hard for somebody to shift out of a usual pattern. Because the whole family dynamic is kind of based on everybody filling their roles and doing things in the same way. And so there's a lot of kind of pressure from the outside to be 
the same daughter you were yesterday or the same husband or wife you were yesterday or have been for the last three weeks or whatever. And so we can have that pressure and feel that kind of boxed-in feeling of expectations that others have of us and that we have of others. So beginning to recognize when we are acting out of expectations instead of just letting somebody be new, be fresh, meeting somebody fresh, can we open to the possibility that something new could happen here? And we also box ourselves in by views of who we are. We do the same thing to ourselves. We create ideas, opinions, views about what we're capable of, who we are, what we know, what we can do. A really silly example, but one that popped into my mind. When I was in college, I went to dinner at this family, you know, people I didn't know very well, and they were, um, it was a it was a family of a friend of mine, and he was kind of a hippie kind of guy, and his parents were really out there. I mean, they were pretty cool, actually. His parents were pretty cool. <laughs> and um, this <laughs> the thing that kind of reinforced this for me, this was, I, this was what, 1980, something like that, something in, in the early 80s. And one of the things that really kind of blew my mind was that they put oranges in the salad. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I had never had fruit in a salad before. You know, this was like a new thing, you know. And it was really good. I thought it was was like, wow, you know, this is very cool. And I remember commenting to a friend of mine as we left. I said, you know, I would never be able to think of something like that. (laughs) My mind just doesn't do that. It just doesn't break out of the box that way. (laughs) And and he looked at me and said, yes, you could. I was like, really? (laughs) I could? (laughs) And, uh, you know, Again, this is a silly example, but, you know, now this is one of my favorite things to do. It's like I open my refrigerator and it's like, what's here? What can I throw together? Oh, I've got black beans. I've got cranberry sauce. That sounds interesting. Let me put those together. (laughs) So, you know, we can break out of our own views of, of who we are. This is, I think this is what Krishnamurti means when he talks about freedom from the known. He has, I think his, one of his books is titled that, Freedom from the Known. Freedom from our sense of who we are, of what we think we know. And then opening to the possibility at, at a more subtle level, moment to moment that we don't know what the next moment is 
It's almost the nature of insight that we can't know what that insight will be. And if we think we know what we're looking for, that very looking will probably obscure the recognition of the insight. At one point on a three-month retreat, I was had been hearing a lot about various experiences, insights that we could have, and and this particular retreat, they talked about you know arising and passing, arising and passing, seeing that things are <coughs> simply arising and passing all the time, and I really wanted this, <laughs> and. Um, so, you know, I, I had some thinking or idea or some, you know, sense that, yeah, that's something I wanted. And I remember doing some walking meditation and having this world of idea pop into my mind, a thought bubble, a construction of going to my teacher and reporting I had seen this arising and passing (laughs) and how wonderful it was and how great these insights are and 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 as I woke up into that thought bubble I recognized what I actually wanted was to be able to tell somebody I had had an insight I had no clue what that insight was none So we don't we don't know. And this opening to not knowing allows us to see things that we've never seen before. And it can kind of be easier to see when we relax and stop trying to find things. Just settle back and relax. Utejania tells a story of a time he, I think it was maybe his first time in Massachusetts. Um, he'd gone to IMS to teach and he was driving around in a car with somebody and uh, this person had uh, what they call a deer alarm on their car and I'd never heard of this but it's apparently a, kind of a high-pitched sound that um, the deer can hear from a distance and they tend to avoid the road if they hear that sound. So um, the, the driver asked Saido Tejnia, can you hear that? And Saido's kind of, can I hear that? Can I hear that? And he was trying to hear it. He was listening for it. He was, he was trying to, to hear it. And um, he, he couldn't hear it. And then he stopped trying and he just settled back. And Kind of, I don't know if he just kind of forgot about it or what, but then it's like, oh, there it is. <laughs> so this attitude or openness, maybe is a good way to put it, openness to not knowing is a really helpful f- 
field in which to investigate. Because often we investigate with the idea of you know, looking for something, perhaps looking for things that are familiar. I think our minds have a habit in a way, again, maybe kind of a human habit of approaching things from this perspective of the familiar. One of you in one of the groups talked about how in the first days of the retreat, going down the paths, the trails, everything seemed so new and so fresh and the the mindfulness was just right there because everything was so fresh. And then after a few days began recognizing that it had become familiar and the mind had started, you know, just going, oh yeah, there'll be that deer around there and those ducks there. And um, so kind of just almost looking for what had been so fresh before. So we can um, notice that the mind is approaching experience through this perspective of the familiar. We can, as Sayadaw says, we can we can see without looking. I think that um, you know, in the familiar, it's kind of like we gravitate towards the familiar. Our mind, you know, it's like out of almost a sense of wanting some kind of security, we gravitate towards what we know already. Yeah, okay, I walk down this path and that's there and that's there and that's there. Instead of just being open to receive fresh what's actually here. So we we tend to look. We tend to kind of have our expectations of what's happening. We tend to, to look for things. And we can can we open just to the seeing? see without looking. So this, you know, this, uh, this term not knowing can be, you know, applied in almost the opposite way that, that I've been talking about it from this perspective of openness to freshness and uh, that in a, a very real deep sense there is no experience that is ever the same ever and yet this term not knowing sometimes also we talk about not knowing as not knowing information or not understanding the not knowing of ignorance So I just like to kind of contrast these two senses of not knowing. The not knowing of ignorance is the lack of wisdom. It's the lack of the the inability to uh, see things as they actually are, to be ignorant of things as they actually are, to be ignorant of the truth of change, the truth of the unreliability of experience to be ignorant of how our minds contribute to this process of struggle. 
the not knowing that I'm talking about today comes out of the meeting with wisdom. The not knowing of ignorance with that not knowing of ignorance without wisdom views flood in. We don't understand the process of perception and we believe our concepts, we believe our ideas, we believe this is who I am and this is who I'll be tomorrow and this is what's going to happen tomorrow. So the not knowing of, of ignorance obscures the not knowing of wisdom. And the interesting kind of paradox in a way is that as the mind begins to deeply understand and free itself from the not knowing of ignorance, it deeply enters into this not knowing of moment-to-moment experience. In the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed. No views, no perspectives that are clouding our meeting of experience. So in one way I think about this not knowing of wisdom is that the mind is clear of views, opinions, ideas, or at least recognizes this is a view, this is a belief, this is an opinion. And so this brings up, at least in my mind, a question of, okay, so if this meeting experience as it is means meeting experience without views, without filters, what on earth is wise view about? Isn't that just some other view that we paste over our experience and then start seeing things from that perspective? So this is, a, this is an interesting <coughs> kind of paradox or <coughs> reflection in a way. What is ra- wise view about? The Buddha talks a lot about wise view. Saito Utejaniya talks a lot about wise view, bringing wise view in to help us have balance of mind. So, there's kind of a, there's kind of a paradox in a way, and I mentioned briefly the other day a sutta that described a, kind of a teaching around this question. And I, I found the sutta, so I thought I'd share some of it with you. Um, Essentially, what it is offering is that the whole kind of wise view that we have in our practice is essentially a view that helps us to understand that holding on to views is suffering. So I'll read a few portions of this. And I figured the Buddha's words will be more clear than mine. <laughs> so, 
I kind of set the context the other day. Ananda Pindaka is a householder, and uh, he's uh, he has a pretty good grasp of the Dharma. Um, and he frequently comes upon various other religious followers of other um, teachers, and they have Dharma conversations, they have discussions, and this one group of people comes up to him and, and says, so tell us what kind of views the teacher Gautama has, the Buddha. And, and Ananda Pindika says, well, you know, I can't tell you actually what kind of views he has. And then they say, well, tell us what kind of views the monks have. And he says, well, you know, I can't really tell you that either. And they're, they're, they're thinking, you know, well, well, you know, he doesn't really know what's going on here. And, and then he says, they said, well, then why don't you just tell us what kind of views you have? And he says, okay, I can do that, but first I want you to tell me what kind of views you have. So and here's what they respond. Oh, first he says, it wouldn't be difficult for me to expound to you what kind of views I have, but please let the venerable ones expound each in line with his position, and then it won't be difficult for me to expound to you what views I have. And so each one said something different, and I'll just read a few of these. One of the wanderers said, the cosmos is eternal. Only this is true. Anything else is worthless. That's the sort of view I have. Another one says, the cosmos is not eternal. This is, only this is true. This is the sort of view I have. Everything else is worthless. Another one says, the soul and the body are the same. Only this is true. Everything else is worthless. Another says, the soul is the one thing. The body is another. Only this is true. Everything else is worthless. So basically, each having completely diametrically opposed views to each other. And then Anandapindaka, after they had all stated their views, he, about each of the views, he, he said this about each one, but I'll just say it for one of them. Anandapindaka said to the wanderers, As for the one who says, the cosmos is eternal, only this is true, anything else is worthless, this is the sort of view I have. His view arises from his own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of another. So basically he's saying it either arises because you're believing it because somebody else said it to you or because you've had some experience and you've reified and believed that experience to be the only truth. So that's, that's what he said there. His view arises from his own inappropriate attention or independence on the words of another. Anandapindika goes on. Now this view has been brought into being, is fabricated, willed, constructed. This view is constructed, dependently originated. Whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. That is impermanent. Whatever is impermanent is stressful. Thus, the Venerable One adheres to that very stress, submits himself to that very stress. So basically, he's pointing out that, and, and it kind of could be seen just in their interaction in a way, they are each holding tightly to their view. Only the cosmos, the cosmos is eternal. Only this is true. The cosmos is not eternal. Only this is true. And they start quarreling with each other. The holding to that view brings stress that manifests in, I'm right, you're wrong. 
that kind of thing. So then the wanderer said, so now tell us what sort of view you have. And Ananda Pindika says, whatever has been brought into being is fabricated, willed, dependently originated. That is inconstant. Whatever is inconstant is stress. Whatever is stress is not me, is not who I am, is not myself. This is the sort of view I have. The wanderers tried to use his argument on Anandapindika and said, So, you believe that, then you adhere to that very stress. But Anandapindika said, Having seen this view for what it is, with right discernment, as it is actually present in the moment, I see it as constructed, as dependently origin, as uh, having seen this well with right discernment, I discern the higher escape from it as it is actually present. So what this points to me here is that basically the views of the Buddha point us to the understanding that whatever is constructed is stressful, even the arising of a view. And so this recognizing and the the holding on to that view, the other piece of this is, you know, saying only this is true, everything else is false. That, That holding to the view, that's stressful, that's creates a sense of self-other. So this this is a little bit of a paradox, in a way. Uh, I see that the truths, the the truths or the, the, the views of wise view to be expressions of moment to moment experience, rather than statements about something in, in the large. And so all those other statements that the wanderers made were like large statements. They were statements, the cosmos is eternal, the cosmos is not eternal. And I think the Buddha is talking about moment-to-moment experience. This experience that's constructed, ar- arisen when clung to, is stressful. He's talking about just the experience in the moment. And one scholar um, exploring the notion of wise view, you know, pointed that, you know, initially, and this I think is very much the teaching around wisdom in the suttas, that it starts, I've said this a number of times, it starts with hearing and listening and reflecting. And at that level, view is stressful and constant. I mean, it is, it's got that quality. If we're holding to views that are just thoughtful reflections and, you know, going around proclaiming, you know, I'm a Buddhist and everything's impermanent and there is no self and if you feel like you have a self, then you're a bad person or whatever. I mean, kind of carrying a banner of Buddhism around. That's stressful. That's... not the depth that wise view can carry us to, which is the direct seeing with insight in a moment. Constructed experience is 
in constant stressful, not me, not mine, not who I am, not worth clinging to. And the scholar put it, uh, that wise view, the, the realization of wise view, is not a view in the, the usual sense that we think of that word. It's not, it's not like a thought. It's not a right view as opposed to wrong view. But it's rather an insight kind of seeing. It's a different order of seeing is the word he used. That wise view, deeply understood, is a different order of seeing. And that different order of seeing points us right into the moment, the recognition of not knowing, the mystery of experience, the unfolding nature, seeing that things happen on their own. And we don't know what's going to happen next. We can't know what's going to happen next. There's a beautiful poem that has a sentence at the end. Amazing. Everything happens by itself. We can have a kind of a reaction to this place when we we meet or enter into this recognition that we don't know. Moment to moment, we have no idea what's going to unfold. It can bring up some fear, insecurity, vulnerability. I know at um, uh, one of my three-month retreats at one point, I just really, it, it kind of <coughs> disturbed me <laughs> that, like, there was this, I just had no idea what was going to happen next. It was just, there was a kind of a clarity around the not knowing, in a way, and yet there was a, a fear. And so there, there was a, there was a, there was some obscuration around this uh, clarity. And there was still some delusion there because there was fear happening. And one day, what I decided to do is, I'm going to face this fear of not knowing. I'm going to meet this not knowing. And what I discovered, actually, was that what was the fear, the fear was about, was the idea that I didn't know. That, that this was where the reaction came from, because the mind created this concept, I don't know what's coming next. And so it's like just a split-second projection into the future. I don't know what that's going to be. (gasps) Oh, no! As opposed to meeting this moment. And what I discovered as I did this exploration was that I couldn't find the not knowing. Everything in my experience was known in a moment being in the moment, 
there was no not knowing. In this moment, there was a real reality that the next moment, I had no idea what that was going to be. But this moment was fully known. It's kind of like we're standing on the edge of an abyss. Here we are, you know, standing. There's ground underneath us. That's known. And what we're asked to do is take a step and trust. And where we end up when we take that step is standing on the edge of the abyss. Let's just sit for a few minutes. Mm. 